should colleges be allowed to consider an applicant's race when deciding whether to admit a student? That's the question that now faces the U.S. Supreme Court. This morning, the justice, justices heard oral arguments in two affirmative action cases. Back in 1978, the high court ruled that schools can take race into account as one of many factors in the admissions process, and the justices have upheld that precedent many times over the years. But today's 6-3 conservative majority could move in another direction and outlaw race-conscious admissions. So here to explain all of that in the cases before the Supreme Court, what's at stake, what we learned from this morning's arguments, most importantly, is Steve Schwinn, law professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Professor Schwinn, so great to finally meet you in person. It's so nice to be here in person with you, Sasha. Thanks for having me. So there are two related cases before the court right now. In, in both of them, we have on one side this conservative group that's called Students for Fair Admissions. On the other side, the college involved. So Harvard University in one case and the University of North Carolina in the other. What are these cases all about, Professor? So the cases at their core are about the race-based affirmative action programs that UNC and Harvard operate. The way these programs operate is that the schools use race as one of many factors in determining the qualifications and admission of incoming students. So, for example, at UNC, they look at race among 40 different factors of measures of diversity of a particular individual mm -hmm. in order to make an admissions decision. Now, the goal here is to increase diversity, but not just racial diversity. So here we're talking about ideological diversity that then will be reflected in the classroom so that the university and all the students can get the benefits of that ideological diversity through their educational experience. So, I mean, th this pair of cases, they're, they're going to bring about one of the more high-profile decisions from the court this term. What are some of the potential outcomes here? Well, so uh, the good money is on the Supreme Court overturning race-based affirmative action programs. The thinking here is that there's no reason for the justices to accept the case unless they were to overturn the Grutter case and other precedent upholding race-based affirmative action programs. So the strongest possibility is that they just outright ban the use of race at all mm -hmm. in college admission. Now, there are some off-ramps for the court and some ways that they might cut back or curtail the use of race that are short of outright banning the use of race. Like how? Well, so, for example, they could modify the way colleges and universities could use race to make it even less usable in their admission process. Kind of hard to imagine. Yeah, how I'm like, how? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and there is an off-ramp that actually Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the court's newest member, who is proving to be an outstanding questioner at oral argument, Raised, and that is what you know. Why do the plaintiffs have an injury here? Why do they have what we call standing to get into court? If race is one of forty factors, how do you untangle race from those other forty factors to precisely determine that a particular person was harmed because of race? Now, if they can use that off ramp, maybe they don't need to consider the underlying issue at all. Yeah. So I want to get into some of what was discussed. You, you already brought up Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. So let's go there first. There was a little back and forth over what students can reveal in their essays about their racial identity. This is a hard one. Let's, let's play that first. We're entertaining a rule in which some people can say the things they want about who they are and have that valued in the system. But other people are not going to be able to because they won't be able to reveal that they are Latino or African-American or whatever. 
So dig into that for us, Professor. What are the potential ramifications of this? Wow, this is a great question and just so illustrative of how what, a, what an addition Ketanji Brown-Jackson is to the court. What she's asking here is that if you have two applicants, one who's writing an essay based on their experience as a legacy applicant, somebody whose family has been going to UNC, for example, for generations, and they draw on that legacy in order to uh, to draw inspiration for their admissions essay. And then another applicant whose family has never been to college before, never been to the University of North Carolina, and is descended from slaves in Mm -hmm. North Carolina, right? So how do you consider the two essays against each other? And isn't it race-based and an equal protection violation, she's suggesting, not to allow the latter candidate to talk about their racial history and their racial identity and their racial experiences on their essay. And yeah. the, the answer that she's implying is, of course it is. That's that's as much discrimination as it is not to consider those things. And before we get into what some of the other justices talked about this morning, I, I want you to set the scene for us, uh, Professor. You know, oral arguments, they can often give this indication of, of how the justices are thinking about a particular case. But I know you weren't in the room, but generally and and procedurally, what happens in oral arguments? So the justices will ask the attorneys questions, and we can discern some things from oral argument, but it's a really dangerous game to make guesses based on oral argument. Now, in this case, we can reasonably expect going into oral argument where the justices line up more or less. And the questioning was very consistent with that today, Sasha. Yeah. So, for example, we saw the conservatives leaning against affirmative action and pressing the schools really hard on their affirmative action programs, really getting into the nits and details of it. We saw the progressive justices, on the other hand, lauding the benefits of affirmative action in higher education and promoting those kinds of questions uh, among the advocates. The uh, oral arguments today, they relied heavily on interpretations of Grutter versus Bollinger and on the 14th Amendment. Just remind us what this ruling and the amendment allow. Yeah, so the Grutter case was an interpretation of the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. And what it said is that colleges and universities can use race as one factor among many in order to increase the diversity of their student body in order to achieve the educational benefits of that diversity. Now, what's important to understand here is that use of race doesn't necessarily cut in favor of a particular race. The use of race is actually going to vary over time depending on the diversity needs and the educational benefits of diversity that the university is seeking. And so we tend to talk about this, for example, as benefiting black applicants or benefiting Latinx applicants. And that, in fact, is what the claim is of the plaintiffs in these cases. Mm -hmm. It's not always so. What the schools are trying to do here is achieve a kind of broader diversity that includes racial diversity, to be sure, but all kinds of different diversity as well. So we've heard a little bit from Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Let's move over to Justice Barrett, who asked the plaintiff's lawyer, Patrick Strawbridge, about the difference between checking a box on an application to self-identify race versus writing an essay that shows lived experience of a racial identity and overcoming discrimination. So give us your impression of this this distinction and and Strawbridge's response. Yeah, so... What we're talking about here is a distinction between the the 
traditional kind of checkbox that we think about on a college application that says right. identify your race or ethnicity. Right. And you check, I'm black, I'm Latino, I'm, right. yeah. And the worry among the opponents of affirmative action is that that's just way too rough a cut, that identifying people by race, that there's a kind of diversity of experiences that people might have, even if they identify as the same race. So, for example, an Asian applicant may have a wide variety of different experiences uh, depending on, you know, who they are, where they came from, what their family's heritage and nationality is, and different factors like that. And asking the question about whether you're Asian or not is just too rough a cut, whereas you could get to those kinds of issues if you allowed applicants to discuss them in the essays. Lived experiences. Exactly. Justice Sotomayor asked Strawbridge how frequently people's race alone is used to decide whether or not the applicant will be admitted. Show me one place the district court found that an applicant checking a box automatically gets a, a greater point. Well, I, I did not say an applicant gets a point. They said that they can take race into account based on that information alone. Their but, testimony but is not necessary. Back, but you're making assumptions with that. I see you nodding there, Professor. What do you make of that back and forth? Yeah, so, well, first off, I ought to note that there are some disputed facts here. So the precise effect of race is hotly disputed in these cases. But beyond that, there's a real core difference here. The opponents of race-based affirmative action are saying that race can be determinative, that in a college's decision, because of a zero-sum game in admissions, that a person can get admitted because of their race only, whereas another person might be rejected because of their race. Whereas the universities are saying, no, no, that's not really how it operates, and it's not how the Supreme Court has told us to operate these race-based programs. Instead, the way that they operate is through a kind of holistic, totality-of-the-circumstances kind of approach, looking at the applicants as a whole, considering race to be sure, but never really in a determinative way that you can extract race from all the many other different determinants of diversity. And so there's a fundamental difference in the mm -hmm. way that the parties are looking at the use of race in these cases, and that may determine the outcome. And the concept of race-neutral admissions came up quite a bit this morning. What's that referring to exactly? So a race-neutral admission would be one that doesn't consider race at, at all. all. Yeah. yeah. And the argument here is that the Equal Protection Clause requires race neutrality, that the government can never use race for any purpose, for good, for evil, to harm, to help groups, or or even for neutral reasons. Uh, and part of the dispute in the case is, does the Equal Protection Clause really mean that? Or instead, is the Equal Protection Clause actually itself an affirmative action instrument? And thinking again about Grutter, could, could the court overruling Grutter mean that this conservative majority court could make other decisions that could hurt diversity, equity, and inclusion just in other parts of American society? Absolutely. And I think we're seeing this come down the pike. This I think court that's has, the fear, right? That's definitely the fear. I mean, we really are battling over the legacy versus, of Brown versus Board of Education here. And what is the meaning of race and how can government use it in making public policy? So we're seeing this in higher education affirmative action, but there's another case, as you know, on the court. Yeah. Uh, dealing with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, where very similar issues are coming up. When is it appropriate for the government to use race to overcome systemic racism, systemic oppression, and the like? And as much as we're talking about race here, Professor, religion and gender also came up this morning. Any takeaways? 
I think this just shows how hard the question is for the court. So if the court's going to ban the use of race in affirmative action, what about something like religion, right? Don't colleges have an interest in increasing religious diversity on campus as well? And if they do, how are you supposed to know who somebody's religion is unless you ask them? Same for gender. And gender, of course, is becoming even more complicated and interesting now that there's a greater recognition of various gender identities and orientations. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that came up in oral arguments, Sasha, today that I thought was really interesting is a question. If we don't use gender as an admission criterion, what tends to happen is women become dramatically overrepresented in higher education. And so what would happen then if we used gender to benefit men so that we can ensure that men get into college and then are in the pipeline for professional jobs and leadership roles in society, right? Right. So kind of turning the tables in a way on the traditional way that we think about it. Very interesting. Uh, So the court's ruling, it's likely to come down in June. Real quick, what are you going to be watching for in the meantime? Uh, well, so I'm watching the Section 2 Voting Rights Act case in the yes. meantime, anything else that comes up from the court with regarding to race. And, you know, the way the lower courts are taking it, their cues from the Supreme Court on its use of race, moving toward what the court would call a colorblind society where government cannot use race to remedy the effects of prior discrimination or remedy systemic discrimination. That is Steve Schwinn, law professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. As this morning's oral arguments were underway, we checked in with WBEZ education reporter Nareda Moreno. She spent a good chunk of last week talking to students from Northwestern and the University of Chicago to hear their thoughts. Nareda has a great report that's up online right now at WBEZ.org, where she shares those stories and looks at what striking down affirmative action could mean for schools in and around this city. I started by asking Nareda why she wanted to look at the local impact of the Supreme Court's forthcoming decision on affirmative action. Sure. So we wanted to focus on the local impact just because we know that this decision is going to impact all schools, uh, but that the impact is going to be most felt on these highly selective institutions. And so in the Chicago area, that really does mean uh, Northwestern and University of Chicago. Um, They are among some of the most highly selective universities in the nation. Um, So something like eight or nine percent of applicants actually get into these schools. And they've both spent a lot of money um, in recent years to sort of to try to diversify their student bodies. And you talked to quite a few students. A very interesting story here. I'm wondering what kind of questions you asked them and what you were setting out to try to learn. So, yeah, I I wanted to talk to as many students as I possibly could. And the goal really was just to understand, you know, what their experience was like in high school, what the application process was like, what it's been like being on campus, you know, in in these schools that really aren't that diverse, but they're making some efforts. Um, And I, I really wanted to understand just why diversity was important to them. And I wanted to know, like, what might be lost if schools were to become less diverse. Mm -hmm. um, And they had some really thoughtful answers. So it was really nice. Well, you open the piece with um, Caitlin Wu, who is a Northwestern sophomore. And I want to play a little bit from your story here. She is speaking about some advice that she got when she was in high school. Our college counselors, like sometimes they would tell us certain things like, oh, don't make yourself too Asian on your application. And like I heard that a lot with other peers that I had where they like tried to make themselves seem less stereotypical in that way to stand out. Yeah, it sounds crazy hearing her say that, right? Don't make yourself too Asian on your application. How have her experiences shaped 
her views then of affirmative action? Yeah. So Caitlin echoed this feeling that I've heard a lot from other students while reporting this story. It's just that Asian American students are held to higher standards. There's this feeling that, you know, they have to um, adhere to this model minority stereotype so that they have to work just a little harder than other people to, you know, to make it through the door. And, you know, it's it's really sad and really disappointing that counselors and teachers or other people around her were telling her, like, yeah, downplay your Asian-ness, make yourself seem less stereotypical or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that she would have a better chance. And we should note that really um, the courts haven't found too much evidence to support those kinds of claims. Um, in the case against Harvard, there was a federal judge who said, you know, um, who, who pointed out really that Asians make up maybe 20 percent of the admitted class, even though they only make up about 6 percent of the people in the United States, and that, you know, Asian American applicants were accepted to Harvard at the same rates as other applicants. Okay. Um, But there's still this this feeling that that's the case. Does, from your conversation with Caitlin, do you think that she thinks that race should be a factor in admissions? She does. Yeah, she definitely supports race-conscious admissions. Um, Like a lot of students, she talked about how you know, the campus experience would change and how important it was to make sure that, you know, black, Latino and Native American students were represented. I think that she said that her feelings on affirmative action have just evolved over the years. But yeah. that, um, there's there's definitely I mean, it can be complicated, but definitely she still supports race conscious. admissions. Well, let's hear from another student that you talked to, Nareda. This is University of Chicago freshman Mark Muchani. I think a lot of elite universities can do better uh, in terms of trying to educate people from all sorts of economic backgrounds. So, like, I think affirmative action should mean more than just accepting the wealthy students from every race. It should mean every black and brown high schooler, uh, no matter where they went to high school, uh, has the opportunity to come here. So tell us more about what Mark and maybe some of the other students that you talked to had to say. Yeah, so Mark is a first-year computer science major at UChicago, and he told me that very early on he knew he he wanted to attend an elite university specifically because of uh, the income benefits and knowing that down the line uh, it would matter in terms of, like, job connections and things like that. He's saying it was important for black and brown kids to take up these spaces, especially when you look at, like, what that's going to mean down the line for, like, leadership, right? Like, the next, you know, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson might not make it to these schools if yeah. we get rid of affirmative action. Um, yeah, and a lot of students were saying sort of similar things about just how they would feel isolated on campus if diversity were to get worse and just that they wanted the university to really prioritize that. So speaking of that, a big question that still remains, for me at least, uh, Nareda, and this is to the universities themselves. Like, if the Supreme Court does strike down affirmative action, what will schools be allowed to do to ensure that they have a diverse student body? Well, so the Northwestern and the University of Chicago did not want to talk to me about their plans for this story. Um, so I've just been looking at what other schools have done. Like you have the University of California system and Michigan State. They've gotten rid of affirmative action uh, just because of state law. Mm-hmm. And so they've said that they've tried, you know, alternative approaches like 
um, outreach programs directed at low-income students. A lot of universities, including the University of Chicago, have mm-hmm. gotten rid of um, SAT scores. Okay. Um, so because that's widely be considered. A I mean, that's barrier. a big help. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And also, a lot of the people that I've talked to are calling for like the end of legacy admissions, uh, which overwhelmingly benefit um, white wealthier families. I see. So overall, you know, your reporting. What would you say it tells us then about the impact that? striking down could have on on black students, Latino students, Native American students even? Well, I talked to one professor named Alvin Tillery at Northwestern. He runs the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy Mm -hmm. at Northwestern. And he pointed out that, like, look, these policies are important. They've definitely increased the number of black, Latino and Native American students. But the vast majority of these students attend less selective universities, uh, community colleges, state schools. And so it's not, you're not going to hear a huge outcry from this community or these communities if this were to go away. Um, but he also just made that point that what you're losing is the next generation of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's going to matter down the line. We know that thousands of civil rights leaders and scholars, uh, military officials, corporations, and schools, they have signed on to amicus briefs asking the Supreme Court to uphold affirmative action. And that also includes the University of Chicago, right? That's right. Um, They did join a brief with about a dozen or so Ivy League schools um, and other highly selective institutions uh, in support of UNC and Harvard. And Northwestern, uh, they did not sign on to any briefs, but they have done so in the past um, in the 2015 case uh, against the University of Texas at Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and there are a lot of Northwestern professors and New Chicago professors, too, that have sort of signed on to different briefs. And, and I should also point out that uh, dozens of conservative lawmakers, including two downstate Republicans, Congresswoman Mary Miller and outgoing Congressman Rodney Davis, they signed on to briefs supporting the case against affirmative action. They're asking the court to overturn that 2003 landmark decision in Grutter versus Bollinger, arguing that race-conscious admissions violate the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Nareda, we won't have a decision from the court until June. What are you going to keep your eye on in the meantime? I'll be watching just how universities respond, and not just universities, but K-12 through institutions as well, because we know that there's definitely going to be an impact there. Um, like, schools are going to have to think about how clubs are going to be named. You know, are you going to allow, you know, like race to be a part of the clubs? Um, The different student associations. Exactly. Can we do that anymore? Yeah. Should students have to like withhold some of that on their resumes, on their applications, Um, you know, watching maybe fee waivers, that system could change. Um, So definitely schools are going to have to start consulting their legal teams now um, to to see how things might change for them. Um, so there's a lot of stake here. Yeah. That's WBEZ education reporter Nareda Moreno. Thank you so much. Thank you.